guys can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this morning we're going to do part 2 of the book. Before I start, just a few things. Uh, last week we went over the first five verses of the chapter. And so I just do want to bring to attention a few things. You know, fortunately, you know, my family, last week we had a family gathering in Queens, and uh, we had the privilege a lot of times when we get there, you know, everyone's saved, so that's definitely a blessing. You know, we were talking a little bit about uh, the lesson and, and this book. So, some of us were talking on Sunday concerning this chapter, and we're discussing essentially, I guess, the difficulties of this book, or some parts of the book. I mean, not the whole book. The book is pretty straightforward. But there's some difficulties with some parts, at least as far as trying to understand. So there seems to be... If you remember what we read, lots of inconsistency with the people in the congregation at Corinth. We know that right from the beginning that they were divided because of, by the men that they followed. Not that the men were causing the division. The men were all the apostles and Apollos and Peter, right? But they were divided because they were linking themselves with these people. And we know it wasn't what the people were saying because they all preached the same thing, they all had the same heart, right? And yet, in their immaturity, they were causing these divisions. Then in chapter 4, if you remember, in particular verse 8, he rebukes them for thinking that they have arrived, right? They thought that they had arrived and they really couldn't be further from it. Not only have they not arrived, but they proved to be, if anything, lagging behind most of the other churches that were being developed during this time as the church was beginning. But what is difficult on our part is discerning who Paul's addressing at different points in the letter. Now, in one sense, he's addressing everyone. He's addressing us 2,000 years later, all the churches, right? This is the Word of God, so this is all relevant for all of us. <clears throat> but not everyone at every point was guilty of what Paul's addressing, just like us. Not all of us are guilty of what is addressed in scripture at all time, but we need to be reminded of it. So this is a general letter to the whole congregation addressing the different issues that existed, that may exist, right, that certainly can exist on everyone levels. But uh, the issues among the people were not universal, but were certainly guilty by a large portion of them. And it seems that some had one way of thinking, and some had another, and it seems to be very little, if any, that had a somewhat balanced understanding of the faith, of the scriptures, and what God's will is. And we see the uh, begin to, uh, to see this inconsistency in chapter 5, right? This is where Paul rebukes them for allowing a member to persist in sexually, a sexually immoral relationship, but one that was not even named by the Gentiles, the pagans, the people that were around them. And though I do not think they thought the relationship was good, I do think that they rationalized the situation and made an excuse for it. In other words, they thought it was good that they were so gracious that they overlooked even this great sin, right? One of the effects, I believe, of the arrogance of arrival is that there's an overlooking of sin and a blindness to reality. We talked about that when we were in chapter 5. But in the same chapter, in chapter 5, we read that Paul had wrote them a previous letter. We don't know anything about this letter. We don't know where it is. But we know that he wrote them a previous letter addressing some things. 
And one of those things that he addressed was sexual immorality and how the church is to respond to it. Right? But it seems that some of them responded in a very undiscerning way. So here you had the church, you had on one hand, you had those who were boasting in some way of how forgiving and how gracious they were by overlooking this great sin of this member and taking grace for granted. And then on the other hand, you had those who took the other extreme by not associating with any sinners of the same sort, not even in the unbelieving world. And Paul says, this is not the case. He said, I wrote you not to do that, but within the body of Christ. Then you have to be, you know, remove yourself from the world, and you're supposed to be a light to the world, right? And the reality was, was such were some of them. The Corinthian believers all came out of a whole plethora of different types of sinful behavior, and God saved them from it, right? Then we saw that at some point, the people wrote to Paul concerning some things that they were a bit confused about. And this is where we get into chapter 7. Verse 1, which we went over last week. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, Paul saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now we're not sure again what the people wrote. But I think the text kind of helps us out as we read it. It may have been the elders reaching out for wisdom. It could have very well been. And usually when a letter is being written, it all falls on the leadership of the church. It could have been some of the members. We don't know. But by the response of Paul, it would seem that some people who probably recognized that sexual immorality was prevalent and wrong took an extreme opposite stance, thinking that all sex was wrong, unless it was for procreation, of course. Because obviously... They're alive. People get into this world. You have to have children, right? And it seems to me, at least, that they took a hard stance in the other direction by refraining from it entirely, even in marriage. And that's a problem because that, as we just read, is one of God's ways for protection against sexual morality. And in verse 2 and 3, he writes on the spouse's mutual duty to each other, that as husbands and wives, if you're married, you have an obligation to each other to fulfill that role with each other and no one else. That's not the only role we have, but that is certainly one of them. And then in verse 4, he tells them to stop depriving or defrauding one another by doing this. That means some of them were doing this. And this can be looked at, I believe, in two ways. That some of them were in fact guilty of actually depriving and defrauding one another. Or that Paul is anticipating some of them being very immature and going from one extreme to the other. And not seeming to have any discernment that he's anticipating some of them to respond this way. And one of the reasons is because of what it could lead to. That is prostitution. We know that was a problem or any other kind of infidelity. So he's giving them a safeguard of how they're to be. So it certainly seems like there were two different extremes that existed within this body. They either approved of or overlooked sinful behavior, or they became some type of ascetic or self-righteous moralist who wasn't really moral at all, if you really look at them. Right? It's neglecting, we would say this, neglecting or defrauding are certainly not moral qualities, right? And then we get into our section today. And in this section, 
there's going to be some of those statements that have brought a little confusion to the church. So I hope and I trust that God will be clear this morning and that none of us are left confused. I'm going to trust that God is going to make that clear. So again, it's still the same outline. Last week I only uh, got to point one. Today we're only going to do point two in the same outline. Uh, last week I had six, uh, six to eight. I had to change the verses to six to nine. That's going to be what we're doing today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 to 9. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 to 9. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. Father, again, I ask that you would just help us this morning. Lord God, we need help from your Spirit always, Father, to be able to understand spiritual things. And we have that. Because we're your children. And we thank you for that, Lord. So I pray again that we would get out of the way, Lord, and, and allow your spirit to teach us, to, to help us, Lord God, to, and show us, Lord God, what we need to know, what we need to, to hear, how we need to, so that we can live properly in this life until you call us home. So again, I trust that you would do that. I trust that, Lord God, I won't get in the way and none of us will as well, Father. So I pray that you would have free reign here at your church, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's look at verse 1. But this I say by way of concession and not of command. So again, here we have a little bit of, or can be a little bit of a difficult verse to interpret. And maybe it's really not that difficult, but it actually, if you look at what people say, and what a lot of commentaries say, they all say, in this chapter in particular, because Paul seems to be giving his opinion, as we're going to see, it can cause a little bit of confusion, being that he's an apostle, he is the one who penned this book, and we know that this book has no error. So how are we to discern this? So the word concession is in most of our translations, unless you're reading the King James the old King James, uh, most of our translations have the word concession. And I understand why the interpreter used it, interpreters use it rather, if we take it to mean an exception or an allowance. That's one of the, that's one of the definitions of a concession. Um, but the actual word is a compound word in the Greek of the word soon, which is the conjunction with, and nome, which... Is, which means view, judgment, or opinion. So Paul is speaking concerning his own judgment or opinion, which I think is very wise, actually, on his part. And therefore, he follows by saying this is not a direct command given to him by God to give to people. And even in his wisdom and authority, which he did in fact have, he knew that what he is expressing was not a direct command from God. Because it is clearly not the will of God for most people to remain single. That's what he's talking about here. So Paul is not going to be so arrogant to say anything more concerning it. I think he's just simply giving his opinion. So though verse 6, I believe, goes with everything so far in this chapter, 
I think it is best as being linked to the following verses, which is why I put it here in my own thing. So in other words, Paul is saying, I know God didn't give any specific command on this, but in my humble opinion, now he gives verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So as we look at Paul giving his own opinion, I do not believe that he is saying that singleness is better than marriage. He recognizes that both states are a gift from God, right? And every gift from God should be appreciated, every gift of God should be embraced and used for His glory, right? And in this case, the gift is a state, right? The state of either being single or the state of being married. Whichever gift one has, every gift from God is good, right? And should be used to bring Him glory. So I think that Paul is just simply expressing that there is a lot of freedom in ministry that the single person is afforded that the married person isn't. You know, I can just use myself as an example. There are plenty of areas to serve the Lord. But not all of them are for all people. There are instances or times when serving the Lord in one area means neglecting something else that is more important. So as a married man, there's plenty of things that I would like to do to serve the Lord. There's many areas to serve. But by me doing those, I would be neglecting other areas. And then that would be not so good. Right? So there's a, I think that's what Paul is trying to express here. Right? In verse 8, he says... But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. And again, he's saying that it's good because it's good. Whether this is their calling for a season or for life, Paul is saying that they have an opportunity to serve in ways that they either wouldn't, couldn't, or even shouldn't serve if they were married. You know, some Christian marriages, this is actually, if you think about that, this has actually been a big problem in Christendom, within the Christian church, even with pastors, right? Some Christian marriages have been destroyed because married couples try to serve as if they were single still. And that's not good. And what happens in that situation is that they will often neglect the God-ordained ministries that go with their own context being married. And they will often neglect to either husband or wife or father and mother. And if that's their context in marriage, that's actually their primary ministries, right? So it doesn't mean that they can't do some of the things that single people can do, but sometimes you're going to be confronted with the situation where, you know what, you have to say no to something because this thing is going to be neglected. When someone's single, like Paul was, he didn't have those restrictions. So I think that's what he's talking about. And think of how destructive that can be within a marriage if a married person lives and acts as if they're not married anymore. That would be really destructive to the family unit, which is so foundational to the church. And not only that, if that happens, it's happening while thinking that you're doing something good because you're serving, right? And you've been deceived, you've been blinded by stubbornness to do something in one area, failing to realize the more important area of ministry. Does that make any sense? But the problem is that you are serving in one area, 
not realizing that you're neglecting the primary areas of ministry that God has called you to serve. And when that happens, then I actually believe you're sinning. I believe you're actually sinning in, th- in the process of thinking that you're doing something good. Yet when you neglect something that is far more important, that is definitely not good. Again, I've never been on a mission trip. Not once. I would love to do that one day, but I'll be honest, God has not placed that on my heart as of yet. And I don't feel any guilt of that, by the way. Okay? I would love to be able to do that one day in the future, but every time in the past, at least in our own context in this church, when we had one, whether it was Ghana, Poland, Russia, right, I either couldn't, shouldn't, or wouldn't go because it wasn't God's will for me to go. And I was fine with that. Okay, if I was single, maybe I'd be in a different situation. doesn't mean that when you're single, you can do everything either. But I would have been in a different situation if I didn't have a mortgage, if I couldn't take off work. Or have, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? We have to look at and take everything together. Verse 9. It says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So on the flip side of things, not everyone can be happy in the situation that Paul's in. Or not everyone can control those desires. So as a safeguard from sexual immorality, he says to marry and enjoy God's gift of sex, because it is a gift, believe it or not. We live in a world where it seems like it's horrendous. But it's actually a gift. So he says to marry and enjoy God's gift of sex in the way that God has ordained it to be, which is holy and righteous, good, and without conviction of being guilty of sin. It's so hard right now when we think of sex. Sometimes we, we don't even like to dirty, we don't even want to talk about it within the church. And yet, it's part of how God made us. Hebrews 13.4 says marriage is to be held in honor among all. And a marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So not only is the marriage bed to be undefiled, the marriage bed is undefiled when it is both held in honor and both spouses keep themselves from sins that defile it. And as I was thinking of this yesterday, a thought came into my mind. Some people, especially if they did not ever leave this book and didn't read the rest of the Bible, right? It almost certainly seems like the main reason for getting married in this book is to not sin in the area of sex. We know that marriage is so much more than that. But we know that there is that, that Paul, oftentimes in Scripture, I was just talking about this with Lenny in a different context today, but that, that God, Paul met them where they were at. God meets us where we were at in our lives. And if they obeyed God's prescription for keeping oneself from sexual immorality, remember the world and the culture that, that, that was around them, it was everywhere. A lot of the other uh, books in the New Testament, the epistles, were, 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 were wicked. It was the same culture, but in Corinth, it was really bad. Okay? And if they obeyed God's prescription for keeping oneself from sexual immorality, they would grow in other areas as well. They would be able to know what the book of Ephesians or 1 Peter or Matthew or Colossians says about marriage, right? And when we obey in the things that God reveals to us, He blesses us by revealing more of Himself and showing us more of what He desires and the blessings that come 
when we obey what he tells us to do. So he met them where they were at. So for application, what can we take from this? Well, one thing is that we should be encouraged and content in whatever situation we find ourselves to be in. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, let's be honest, probably maybe all of us at any given moment, struggle oftentimes with being content and finding encouragement in the place where we are at, in the scriptures, right? So sometimes encouragement and contentment can be difficult to experience, let's just be honest. But we can only experience encouragement and we can only experience contentment concerning the will of God when we actually think according to the will of God, when we think biblically, when we really, really believe this and understand it. So to think biblically is not just knowing what the scripture says, but to truly believe it and want it. Want it for ourselves, knowing that it is the absolute best thing for us and getting so in tune with that that the only thing can really come next is that peace that kind of comes from believing this and knowing this and accepting our place in life. Again, a perfect example. Again, I want to use me. I'll bash me again. It's so easy for me to leave myself as an object lesson of what not to do. But I think of me again before Shannon. Me before Shannon. Again, this is going to be an example of one that you are not to follow. Okay? You know, it's unfortunate that that this is the case with me, that I have to say this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, right? And God met me where I was at, and He's gracious. But before Shannon, I was guilty of not being encouraged and content by my singleness. I wanted so much to meet a godly woman. I wanted to get married and settle down. The problem was, instead of embracing the great opportunity that was in front of me, I cried, woe was me, and was blinded by my own sin. Being encouraged and content is not only the will of God, but it's an attitude that helps drive us to love and serve Him better. So when I think of where I was before Shannon, here, I wanted to do that. You know, John will, will joke around if you, if you ask him. And he used to teach the young adults. At that time, I was in my, you know, mid-twenties, younger than mid-twenties. And I would go to church every Sunday, unless I had a really rough night before, <laughs> right? And I would say, sir, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't go. It's just too, I can't sit that long. I can't sit still. And meanwhile, I knew this. I always loved hard messages and all that kind of stuff. But here, I'm saying I want God to provide me something, and yet I'm hanging out with the wrong people. I'm doing the wrong thing. And my frustration of not having that, I'm sinning by... Well, you guys can figure that out with your own imaginations. And it's shameful. Why would God... I'm not even being that person that a godly woman should have. And yet, I was guilty of not being content and embracing that gift of singleness that I had for that season to be really using my life. Lord, what do you want me to do? Instead, I was crying, woe is me. That's never good. 
So let's look at some scriptures concerning being both content and encouraged by our current place in life. These are all popular verses, but you know what? They're popular for a reason, right? So I hope that we can be encouraged by them. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, it's just a, a few verses there. We'll get to that hopefully next week. It says, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, let's look at this as individuals now, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Be who God has called you to be as an individual in your own context and where you are at. Then Philippians chapter 4, concerning God's provision, Paul's speaking to the church. And he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I wish people would understand the context before they're always so quick to quote this verse, right? Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. I think I'm having a nosebleed right now. Well, you see nose dripping out of my nose, just forgive me for that. I think I can manage it. I'm good. Um, so you hear Paul in his context. He's been through so many different circumstances in life. And he had to learn how to be content. It didn't just come natural. He had to learn through the experience and constantly regrouping his thoughts to make sure they were always in line with God. Right? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6-10, he said, But godliness is actually a means of great gain when it is accompanied by contentment. For what have we brought into this world? For we have brought nothing into this world, sorry. So we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and the snare of many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So here, the context here, he's using money and riches. But that if they get out of balance, they become a master over you. And it becomes sinful in our lives. Something which really isn't sin. Money is not sinful. Possessions are not sinful. Okay? But it's the love of those things rooted and grounded in never being content with what you're satisfied with where God has you in this world. Especially, especially if we really take a step back and understand that God doesn't owe us anything. Right? He doesn't owe us anything. And yet, He gives us, He promises to supply our needs. Right? And yet He gives us so much more if we be honest. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh. But I think it goes well good here as well. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... 
For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I know that all these verses have a context that goes with it. But in all of them, contentment is what, on, is, what is on display and what Paul is trying to express for all of us. And when, where there is contentment, there is also going to be encouragement. When we get to that place, we can be encouraged and strengthened in the inner man that God has given us the strength to experience this. Again, it all starts by having a proper mindset that is consistent with what he says. And then the other thought I had for application is this. Paul had said in this chapter, and he's going to continue to say indirectly, that his thoughts on the topic discussed are his opinion. Or that you know, the Lord maybe did not address this in detail during his ministry. And because of this, some have found, again, the section to be a little bit difficult to interpret. And though opinions aren't facts, right? There's a difference between facts and opinions. They can be of great use to us. But they can also be quite the contrary as well. So what am I actually saying here? We live in a world that is full of people with their many opinions on this topic or that topic. Everyone has something to say, right? And I believe that most of these opinions are not the best because most people in the world are lost. They don't know Jesus. And their opinions stem from a wicked heart and an ungodly worldview. Now this doesn't mean that we cannot learn anything from lost people. There are many lost people that have their heads on straight and have good conclusions on things, right? In other words, I'm not just going to go to a doctor because they're Christian. They could be a Christian doctor and they're not that good of a doctor. <laughs> Alright? So what is an opinion? Usually, it's contrasted with facts, right? So an opinion is a view or a judgment formed in the mind about a particular matter, right? Facts, on the other hand, are things that are true. One plus one is two, that is a fact, right? I'm wearing brown shoes with white socks. That's a fact, right? But opinions, I believe, can be correct. Or maybe they can be wise. Opinions are correct if they are based on wisdom. Hopefully you guys can understand where I'm going here. And wisdom, we all love that word, right? We are called to be wise. But wisdom is simply rightly applying the knowledge that God has given us. He has spoke to us. 
He's spoken to us a great deal in His Word, right? If God has told us something to do, wisdom would tell me to what? Follow it. Obey it. Whereas foolishness would do the contrary. So you better believe that I care about certain people's opinions. I care about what they say on certain things. I actually care very deeply about what some people have to say. Why? Because they care about the facts. They believe in objective truth. They care about the scriptures and what the scriptures say. They have a great understanding of the scriptures. So even if I may not agree with their opinion, I certainly want to, to hear and see if maybe I may be wrong or missing something. Because guess what? Mike hasn't arrived. And there's times that I miss things. I want to hear what some people have to say. And I can't explain to you how, I can't tell you enough of how important that is to me. And that should be really, I believe, to all of us. There is great freedom in knowing what the truth is. But on the contrary, I can care less about what a lot of people say. I'm, never gonna, I'm not going to go to them. I'm not going to seek them for advice. I don't really care about what they say. I weep. I care about what they say to the extent that maybe God will give me an opportunity to say something to them that's different and maybe they can listen, but that's in God's hands. But that's, I'm not going to care about what they say as far as teaching me anything because what they say is very foolish. So I don't care about what their opinion is because their opinions stem from, again, a foolish way of thinking. So their advice on something will most certainly be the wrong advice. And if I was already undiscerning to go to them, what would stop me from listening to them? Right? And if that happens, I can open up a whole world of sin and chaos by going to the wrong people and their opinions rather than going to the right people and their opinions. And perhaps there's no greater uh, maybe example in Scripture, at least this is where God brought me to, to King Rehoboam. If you guys know anything about King Rehoboam, he was Solomon's son. And he, went, he, uh, he obtained kingship right after Solomon passed away. So why don't you guys open to 1 Kings chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 to 19, and we're going to read about what Rehoboam did, and hopefully we can learn from that, and you can see why this is one of my application points. So 1 Kings chapter 12, right in the beginning. Amen? We're there? Okay. Says then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. And then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. And we know that Solomon, as wise as he was, didn't really end very well. He may have got it together later in the years. We don't know when some of those Proverbs were written, but 
Solomon, the wisest person that ever lived, almost seems like he was a foolish, the most foolish person if you look at some of the things that he did as well. But then he said to them, depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer these people? And then they spoke to him, saying, if you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them, and grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, and then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give me that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him, And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And we know the story. From that moment on, Israel was divided. Right? You had the ten tribes were in the north, and then you just had Judah and Benjamin, I believe, that were in the south. So here you had this great nation. I mean, Israel was a superpower under David and Solomon. And then, because of foolishness, because of not hearing the opinions of those who have a little more wisdom, instead, you listen to the opinions of young, foolish kids who obviously had in mind their best interest rather than the interests of the whole nation. And it's something that we can learn. Remember, Everything written in earlier times, Romans says, was written for our instruction so that we, through the patience and comforts of the Scriptures, might have hope. Everything from Genesis to Revelation is for us that we can operate rightly. 
and not operate like fools. And we need that living in this world that is so sick and twisted, right? We need to be able to have the discernment that comes from the Scriptures. And we want to be balanced. This church seemed to be very imbalanced. You had, you had some people way over here, then you had some people way over here. And it's like the crazy cycle, right? We want to keep ourselves from the crazy cycle. It's easy to get there. How do we do it? By keeping our minds stayed on Him. Right? By acknowledging what He has said and embracing it and holding up high and encouraging one another in the most holy faith, which is all stuff that is in here. Right? So that's all I got. Finished a little early today, but that's okay. Any questions? Comments? No? We're good? Alright. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life that it brings us. For the light that it gives us. Lord, we are no longer in blindness. What a wonderful blessing that is. That we know the truth. The truth has set us free. I thank you for the great freedom that we have in you. And Lord, I thank you just for the privilege of being able to gather together here with one mind, embracing and holding up the same word that is to all of us, to your people. What a wonderful privilege that is to be those who can understand a heavenly word. We thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for revealing your truth to us. Because if you did not do that, we would be without understanding. We'd still be in our sins. Mm -hmm. So we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done for us. Pray, Father, that again you would keep our attention as we are going to... I'm excited to learn our study in the book of Ephesians, Father. I look forward to seeing what you have to say to Pastor, what you have to say to Pastor John tonight, Lord. And look forward to seeing what you're going to do to us the rest of the week, how we can apply these things and that we can take everything that we've learned on top of everything that we do in our own personal devotions, Lord God, and just be the vessels that you've called us to be. So I thank you and praise you for all that you do and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.